Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey everyone and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host Heather Ashley and in today's episode you have to decide what you believe when it comes to the total and complete disappearance of a teenage boy. Small talk sucks so let's dive in. Seventeen-year-old Mason Smith was new to the St. George, Utah area, and I feel like we have done so many cases out of Utah. But anyways, his mom and dad, who ran a tight ship to say the least, had just recently moved there from Canada about five months prior, and if we're being honest, Mason was having a hard time living so far away from everything he knew, all that was familiar, his five older siblings, and he really just wasn't making any friends. But Mason had anime. He was super into anime. I've done a few cases involving anime, which sounds just weird when I say that out loud. But what I've learned about the culture surrounding it is that it's incredibly emotional entertainment and it seems almost addicting to the niche of people that it attracts, watching it for hours on end if and when given the chance. You guys know that I'm not going to lie to you and paint a picture of someone that isn't true just because they've gone missing. And Mason was no doubt a good kid, but he did struggle with depression. It had been a years-long battle, and he had even attempted suicide once when they lived back in Canada. I almost hate bringing up anyone's psychological struggles because it always seems to trigger the suicide assumption, and I think it can cause some unintended confirmation bias from the very beginning. And for those of you who aren't familiar with confirmation bias, it's when you start interpreting information in a way that supports your already formed theories. That's one reason you have to be super objective and keep an open mind when diving into this true crime stuff, but nonetheless, Mason's struggles with depression are a real part of his story, and it's the truth, and the truth is all that matters here. On the last night of August in 2015, Mason was supposed to go out driving with his dad. He still only had his learner's permit and needed the practice and driving hours. But Mason tells his mom that he's not feeling great, so instead of going out and driving with his dad, he stays home in his room, something his mom said that he'd been doing a lot of, and it was starting to concern them. Mason deciding to stay in may or may not have been what triggered an argument between Mason and his dad that night, but what we do know for sure is that they did, in fact, get into an argument. The night goes on, and even though his curfew on school nights is 10 p.m., he can't sleep, so he pulls out his laptop and starts watching anime. Between 1 and 1.30 a.m., it's technically September 1st now, just hours before he was supposed to wake up for school, his dad catches him watching the videos on his laptop and confiscates all of Mason's electronics. 
Mason doesn't put up a fight. He just hands everything over and goes to bed. Tuesday, September 1st was like any other mundane weekday for the Smith family. The school year had only just started a couple of weeks ago. Mason's dad knocks on his door around 7 a.m. to wake him up for school and then goes back into him and Mason's mom's bedroom where they both go back to sleep. Both Mason's mom and dad claim to have heard him rumbling around downstairs in the kitchen, raise the garage door, and head to the bus stop. But that afternoon, Mason's mom gets notified that her son hadn't attended any of his classes that day, nor did he get off the bus that afternoon, so she rushes home early to try and figure out what's going on. You'll remember that his dad had confiscated his phone and his laptop the night before, so he obviously didn't have those with him, but his wallet, passport, and school binder were also left behind. Mason's mom doesn't think he ever intended to go to school that day, and without his passport, we can scratch off going back home to Canada, where everything was familiar. They ask around, and no one can remember whether or not he got on the bus Monday morning, which is honestly absurd. He is six foot four and 200 pounds. He kind of stands out. It's not like he'd be hard to spot walking down the street or ducking down to get into a school bus. Honestly, I'm always flabbergasted when people as big as Mason go missing, and I always immediately assume that more than one person is involved, but nonetheless. Mason has now been missing for three days. How many times have we seen this? A kid gets ready for school and heads out the door like any other day, but never gets there. It's like the Annie McCann case all over again, except Mason didn't even have his own means of transportation. He didn't have a license. No cars were missing. Whatever happened to him seems like it would have had to have taken place between the time he opened the garage door to leave his house and the time the bus stopped at his normal spot. Unfortunately, it has to be noted that Mason had gone missing once before, but according to what one of his sisters told Fox 13, it had only been for a few hours, and this is the first time he'd ever been gone for days at a time with no contact. Stories of the Unsolved reports that Mason ran away from home in 2013 when they lived back in Canada. It was prompted after his video games were taken away after his grades started to slip. He took food, a sleeping bag, and resumes with him, but came back once it got too cold. This is always a bitch to try and relate to police. You almost don't want to let them know that he's run off before because something inside you feels like this time is different, and as hours turn into days, your feelings are validated. I mean, Mason left with nothing this time. Last time, he was smart enough to take resumes with him, which is really impressive. A year later, he'd certainly have stepped up his preparedness if running away was his true intention. But as expected, when police are notified of Mason's disappearance, they initially treat it as a possible runaway, though they say they are taking it seriously, and I'll admit they did. There are so many cases where I feel like a teen disappears and law enforcement just kind of writes them off as a runaway and wastes crucial time, but this is not one of those instances. By September 4th, friends and family get together and start plastering the town and the school with flyers about Mason's disappearance asking to know if anyone had seen him since the morning of the 1st. A friend comes forward to say that he saw Mason get onto the school bus on Tuesday the 2nd, but that's just not plausible. He never showed up for school Monday, he never came home that afternoon, and I highly doubt he caught the bus bright and early the next morning to go back to the school that he again wouldn't attend any classes for. 
The friend then says he might have been mistaken, that it may have been Monday that he saw him, and while that's still something, this is why eyewitness testimony isn't always what it's cracked up to be. Fox 13 reports that by Saturday, September 12th, 2015, over 240 people volunteered to do a grid search for Mason, who has now been missing for 11 days. They search and search and search, and the day ends with no sign of Mason. A missing persons poster starts circling that suggests Mason may have been heading to the Las Vegas area where there was scheduled to be an anime convention. So I looked up anime conventions in Las Vegas in September of 2015, and sure enough, Sabacon, and I hope I'm not butchering that, was scheduled to be at the Alexis Park Resort from the 5th to the 7th. This would have been only a two-hour drive from where Mason lived. He wouldn't have needed to leave on the 1st, and he certainly would have been back before the 12th. So I think we can scratch the anime convention theory off of the list of probabilities. Seriously, even if he walked there, he still would have gotten there days before it was expected to start and would have gotten back days before the 12th when the grid search was held. On the 14th, his mom Tracy speaks out for the first time to NBC News, telling them of his battle with depression, saying how hard it's been for him since he moved to Utah from Canada, that being away from his siblings has been rough. His mom tells the news station that she wants him to know how much his life means to them and their community. His mother was Mormon from what I understand, so I'm going to assume that she's referring to the LDS community, which is huge in Utah. Now, this is a different tune that I'm used to hearing when it comes to parents of missing teens, though. He's been missing for 13 days now. Red Rock Search and Rescue checked out the Las Vegas area and found absolutely no sign of Mason. Locals searched around his home and school and found nothing. Mason isn't just kind of missing. He's missing missing. You generally expect to hear a plea to whoever has him or anyone who has information about where he is or what might have happened, but from her statements, it sounds like she thinks he may be suicidal or in actual runaway like the police had currently classified him as. She mentions something interesting, though, that they found a folded-up, three-page, handwritten note in Mason's wallet a week after he went missing, and says that the note did in fact allude to self-harm, allegedly saying that he didn't want to live any longer. The entire letter, which I'm estimating was found around September 8th, has never been released, but according to a later search warrant affidavit obtained by KSL-TV, Mason went in hard on his parents, so it makes sense that they didn't feel like sharing that with the public. But this got me thinking. Generally, people don't hide their suicide notes in wallets that will be folded and tucked as close to them as humanly possible. If he genuinely wanted them to see this note, I can only imagine that he wouldn't have played hide-and-seek with it. But time ticks away, and come September 26th, they do another 12-hour search, including trained dogs and search horses, but less than half the volunteers as before. And again, absolutely nothing was found. Nada. Zero things. They vow to search again the very next day. According to KSL-TV, his parents show up and are told to stay in an area set up specifically for them while everyone goes out, noting that someone had said something along the lines of, if someone finds something, you don't want to be around for it. But she doesn't want to sit around, so she goes home while everyone else searches. Another tip comes in from the Las Vegas area saying that someone may have seen Mason, but his mom tells the Spectrum that until she sees a picture and confirms it's him, that it's just hearsay, and that she doesn't think Mason went far and is focusing on the St. George area. Whoa there. 
that's probably the most dismissive and yet presumptive reaction to a possible sighting of a missing child that I have ever heard. What about the idea that they may have been headed towards that anime convention in Las Vegas? I guess we're going to pretend that didn't happen. Maybe I'm just getting bad vibes, but if anybody was seeing my missing son in a place where I'd initially suggested he might be going, I may be inclined to take their tips more seriously than this. Honestly, if you said you saw him on fucking Mars, I'd find a way to check it out. On October 4th, Mason is officially added to NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. This is a website that anyone can go to and get identifying information about any officially recognized missing persons. Electronic billboards litter the sky around Utah asking for any information on Mason's whereabouts. Almost two weeks later, in mid-October of 2015, a $1,000 reward is set for any information that leads to finding Mason. But a couple of weeks after that, it's revealed that that reward is actually being offered by Red Rock Search and Rescue. You'll remember that they searched for him earlier in his disappearance. They publicly state that they believe a friend might know where he is and they want them to come forward with that information. Now, they're not private investigators, so for them to make such a bold statement probably means that they know something that we don't. The only tips law enforcement is receiving at this time are possible sightings, all of which wind up being absolutely nothing. Red Rock Search and Rescue decides to expand their searches from Las Vegas all the way up to Salt Lake City. It's now November and Mason is still missing. He hasn't spent a dime from his bank account. He hasn't called a single friend or family member, not even anyone in Canada, and none of his social media accounts have been logged into since September 1st. Teenagers don't just drop off of social media and teenagers into anime don't just give up anime. That is not how this works. That's not how any of this works. I'm starting to wonder if anyone in the house actually saw Mason after he had his laptop taken away in the middle of the night. His dad says he knocked on the door to wake Mason up, but I've seen nothing about whether or not he got a response from him. Just stories from his parents about hearing him in the kitchen and opening the garage door. The same parents who allegedly went back to sleep after knocking on their son's door to wake him up. In a later article, it said that Mason's parents thought they heard Mason in the kitchen that morning. And that's a lot different than being sure you heard him in the kitchen and being sure you heard him open his garage door to leave the house. KSL TV adds some new information that says that after Mason's dad woke him up, which just means he knocked on his son's door, he went back to bed, but then got back up to take the computer cord out of Mason's room to see what he was looking at when he confiscated his computer earlier that morning. He says he can't remember if he looked at the contents of the computer right then after he got back out of bed to get the cord or after he went back to sleep, woke up, went to the gym and got back home. That's a pretty significant time difference. If I'm bothered enough to get out of bed a second time to grab something, I'm going to be bothered enough to do what I intended to do with whatever it was. I'm not sure how you'd forget whether you looked at the computer after you got out of bed a second time that morning to get the cord because you all of a sudden wanted to know what your son had been watching the night before, or if you ditched the cord you just got out of bed to go get, took a morning nap, got in a good workout, and then watched it when you got back that afternoon. Anyways, on November 10th, Mason's Army on Facebook organizes an event to encourage at least 10,000 social media users to spread the word about Mason's disappearance in hopes to generate any new leads or tips about where he might be, and they do. But nothing happens, no new leads, no new tips, no Mason. 
November turns into December, December turns into January, January turns into February, and temperatures are freezing. And no one, absolutely no one, has seen or heard from Mason for the last five months. Mason's mom tells Gebhardt daily that a donor has come forward to add $5,000 towards the reward for any information leading to Mason's whereabouts. His mom also tells the news outlets that she'll be clearing out Mason's account and adding it to the sum total reward, making it $10,000. Now, when I first read this, my eyes almost exploded, but it looks like she's referring to a GoFundMe account and not Mason's personal bank account. I read in earlier reports that his GoFundMe was being used to fund the searches for Mason, though the bio of the GoFundMe account says that it's to take the financial burden off of the Smith family since Mason's disappearance, but it currently, four years later, has $5,425 sitting in it, so I'm guessing it has never been touched. Fast forward to April 7th, 2016, and Mason's 18th birthday comes and goes. There was this last glimmer of hope that on his 18th birthday, they'd get a phone call from him that he's okay, that he's where he wants to be because he's an adult and he would no longer be considered a runaway. But the phone never rang, Mason never called, and everyone was left exactly where they had started last September, not any closer to knowing where he went or what might have happened to him. On May 31st, Mason's mom gives an update on the case, which is more so just a bunch of random rundown facts of the case. It's kind of long, but bear with me. I'll add my two cents. Let's do this. One, Mason did not get on the bus September 1st of 2015. Two, Mason did not attend school on September 1st of 2015. Three, he had gone to bed early the night before he went missing after the argument with his dad, but nothing was off about his communications through texts or with friends. So I guess he must have woken up at some time in the middle of the night and started to watch that anime that his dad confiscated. Let's continue. Four, she heard him in the kitchen downstairs like she does every morning, and he left at 740 like always, saying he usually caught the bus. Hold on. This is the first I'm hearing about him usually catching the bus. What did he unusually do? Catch a ride with a friend? Was Uber a thing back then? Let's be real, he didn't use an Uber. Did he ever walk to school? Five, Mason was not comfortable driving. This bullet point is interesting to me. He didn't take anyone's car and no cars are missing, so it's not like anyone is under the impression that he hopped in a car and drove off, but okay, good information to have, I guess. Six, he left without all the stuff we mentioned earlier. Everything normally in his wallet was still in there. I do want to fold up three sheets of paper and see how big that would be and how obvious it would be in a wallet, though. I'll take a photo of it and post it to my Instagram page under Mason's highlight at the Heather Ashley. Seven, his mom says his electronics were confiscated between 1 and 1.30 a.m. because he was quote-unquote still up watching movies. Mind you, this is also the same post she said he went to bed early in. If we're being real, something about the time Mason allegedly went to bed early and the time he was supposed to get to school seems really off to me. Eight, he hasn't been on social media, which we already know. Nine, St. George police have all of his electronics, including his Xbox, and haven't found anything of substance. Ten, she says Mason has a couple of friends from school, but mostly hung out by himself and says that those friends have been questioned. 11. She reiterates that he was always home and they had to encourage him to socialize. 
12. She said her son was a good kid, and when she'd leave him a list of chores, he would do them without complaints, but adds that sometimes he would tell her that he forgot. Okay, random to add, but okay. 13. She says that Mason was loved by his parents' extended family and community, that she told him almost daily that she loved him. This is such a strange comment. We know he wasn't social and not very involved in his community. This sounds like one of those setting the stage comments. I don't know. I just don't like it. She said Mason would get low at times, but said that St. George was the happiest she'd ever seen her son and says they figured it was because it was always so sunny. But again, we know he struggled being away from all of his friends and siblings along with everything and everyone he knew, and he didn't have many friends and he had been isolating himself. So I can't figure out if this is just a mom painting the best picture of her child that she can, being blinded by his best moments and optimism, or if something else is going on here. 15. Mason worked all summer to catch up on the credits that didn't transfer from Canada so that he could graduate on time. I don't know what this has to do with anything, but holy shit. Couldn't they give him that last year in Canada before uprooting him and moving him somewhere that his education wouldn't even transfer to? 16. She said Mason went to school in Alberta from freshman to junior year and was supportive of their move to a warmer climate and enjoyed the perks of a larger school. What perks? Again, we know he had few friends, struggled with depression, missed his siblings, and was spending most of his time alone. 17. She says that Mason loved to sing and wanted to be a professional singer. Okay, now we're just getting off topic. 18. Mason wrote lyrics. Okay, gotcha, music, good, moving on. 19. She said he left a note that said goodbye and said that he was upset with his parents for different reasons. It was a three-page note. It said a whole lot more than goodbye. And from this list of fluff, you'd never know he had three pages full of shit to say about his parents. 20. Lastly, she ends with the fact that Mason didn't do drugs or drink alcohol. That was an absurdly long list, but I think it's important for us to listen to what people say and what they don't say and how it changes over time. In this instance, I think it shed a little bit more light into the situation at home, possibly being different than it's been portrayed for the last almost a year now. Every interview I've watched and read throughout this case, something has seemed off, like there was an elephant in the room that everyone was trying not to mention or make eye contact with. So let's keep going. On August 27th of 2016, Mason's mom partners with a group called Text Witch, which Gebhardt Daily describes as a group that feeds the homeless and includes missing persons posters on the lunch sacks they disperse. They hand out lunches and flyers at Pioneer Park in Salt Lake City, hoping to run into someone who had seen Mason. According to the Spectrum, the family handed out 500 lunches that included a photo of their son, but nothing new came in in the way of leads. An entire year passes without a single trace of Mason, and then a little more about that mysterious three-page letter comes out. His mother tells the Spectrum that it wasn't very detailed. It was just a note of frustration and anger and a feeling like he wasn't heard or appreciated. It didn't really give any insight as to where or how. It just said, I'm done, basically. Look, it was three pages long. 
It was detailed. We can all rest assured on that. And this letter sounds like a stark contrast to the sunny picture his mother painted in her Facebook post with the endless bulletin points about her missing son. At one point in time, Mason's mother said that publishing the note wouldn't be fair to him, but from the sounds of it, it probably wouldn't make them look very good. But alas, what do I know? I haven't seen the note. Some have speculated that the letter may have mentioned something about his sexuality, and that's why they haven't released the letter. But that wouldn't really go along with the narrative we've been given, that he was extremely upset with his parents and didn't feel heard or appreciated. Homosexuality can be extremely controversial in the Mormon community, so it was a theory that went around pretty quickly, but with no solid backing. On November 16th of 2016, Mason's parents hold what they describe as the last search of the year for their missing son before they're forced to celebrate their second Thanksgiving and second Christmas without him. Spoiler alert, they found nothing. Again, you're shocked, I know. Gebhardt Daly, who has done an amazing job covering this, by the way, mentions something I think everyone else has kind of been scooting around. Since that day, Mason's family and friends have no solid evidence that Mason is still alive. It's been more than a year since he disappeared, and I think this is the first time I've seen it suggested that he may not be alive. We didn't even really catch any wind of his disappearance until three days after he went missing. And even prior to his parents finding this mysterious three-page handwritten and folded note in his wallet, they never seemed to suspect foul play or be in any huge panic like we've seen with other family members of missing children. Reference Duke Flores' family, Annie McCann's mom, Mackenzie Lewick's family and friends, Shanann Watts' family and friends, Nick and Justin Demel's families, Jennifer Dulos' mom, Jennifer Kessie's family. You get the point. It doesn't seem like anyone really pushed for police to suspect foul play or look for someone who may have done something to Mason. They just searched locally. His mother was specific about keeping searches local, regardless of the initial report that he may have been headed to Las Vegas and seemingly wrote off any reported sightings of him there. With time, they offered a reward and continued to do the occasional search and waited. And then they waited some more. Something that's always bothered me is that he left in the morning at the same time as always after doing his morning routine. But why try and dip out when everyone's awake and there are witnesses all around? We know he was awake in the middle of the night. Why not slip out into the darkness while everyone's asleep when virtually no one would be on the roads? And I mean, we can blame it all on this mysterious letter they found seven days after Mason went missing that none of us have ever seen. But if it was an explanation into everything going on, I'm almost certain they would have rushed to publish it. They didn't go through their missing son's wallet for a week after he seemed to have up and vanished, even though there was a massive folded up letter just chilling in there. The kid left with nothing, and I fully mean nothing, like not even medications or a weapon, so for them to insinuate that he was leaving to commit suicide doesn't make a ton of sense either. He also left with nothing that would leave any trace of him, which is really convenient for anyone who may have been involved in his disappearance. Let's say he committed suicide with some object he found along the way, since we know he didn't take a weapon with him. You can't hide your own 6 foot 4 inch 200 pound dead body, and they've searched all around St. George, and I have a hard time believing that if he killed himself, he wouldn't have been found by now. And if he ran away, it would be really hard to stay afloat with no ID, passport, visa, debit card, or phone. You'll remember he's not from the U.S., but... Let's continue on. 
Fox 13 reports that Red Rock Search and Rescue, who has also mentioned that it's as if Mason vanished into thin air, has scheduled their 14th search for Mason, just days shy of which will be his 19th birthday. That's a little less than one search a month from these guys since the day that Mason went missing. If I ever disappear, please call them. Speaking of... Disappeared does an episode on Mason that garners a lot of attention, and everyone who watched it seems to think that Mason felt lost without his anime and video games and walked into the wilderness to die. And frankly, I don't buy it, and we've been over why, though I could also add in that that's the most improbable, dramatic, and absurd theory that I have ever heard, ever. And while I love Disappeared and other shows like that, seriously, you should see my DVR. After doing the series on Chris Watts, I've learned to take TV show documentaries with a grain of salt. So much information has been left out of every single Chris Watts documentary I've ever seen, and I couldn't understand why until I put the whole podcast series together. It's a lot of information, and it would take a lot of airtime and, frankly, a lot of research. In the end, these are just TV shows, and they need ratings to be successful, so they air an hour's worth of information and move on to the next case. I think there's a lot more to this story, and an hour-long show with interruptions of bears singing about their heinies being clean and people dropping grates and hitting their life alert buttons just isn't going to be able to cover it all. In June of 2017, human remains were found about 40 miles south of St. George, Utah, and Mason's parents seem adamant that they don't believe the remains belong to their son. But why? They've been adamant that the searchers remain close to the St. George area, and I can't imagine they think he's out living in a tent in the desert living off the land. So why be so vocal and seemingly certain about these bones not even possibly belonging to Mason? Maybe they're holding out hope that he's alive, but I haven't gotten that vibe from them in the past, so the sudden pushback against these remains belonging to their son just seems odd. From what I could find, there are 107 missing persons in the entire state of Utah at the moment, which sounds like a lot until you break it down. That's 3.4 people per 100,000, according to ViventSource.com. There are roughly 84,000 people in St. George, so there's a solid chance that any remains found in the vicinity could belong to Mason. But again, his parents seem certain that the remains found do not belong to their son, and in the end, I'm sure you're shocked, they wind up not belonging to Mason. Around the two-year anniversary of Mason's disappearance, his mom posts something almost poetic. I would have never imagined our current situation as Mason's future, his feet directing him right out the front door and out of our lives. But he didn't walk out of the front door. He walked out of the garage. Let that simmer for a minute. On Saturday, October 14th, 2017, a search is organized in St. George again. Someone who attended the search said that not much was found, which leads me to assume that whatever was found didn't seem to be related to Mason at all. In April of 2018, yes, that was a big fast forward, the Spectrum mentions that Mason's mom has stepped back from engaging with online users along with the Spectrum and Daily News, citing personal reasons. You have my attention. 
Mason's mom does, however, speak to Gebhardt daily and tells them that while the police had gone through all of his electronics, it turns out that Mason's hard drive was encrypted and no one has been able to access any of its contents. In May of 2018, they announced a planned search for that upcoming September. Yes, four months away. It'll take place just after the three-year anniversary of when Mason went missing. They'll be searching the desert near the family home yet again. You'll be shocked to know that they found nothing. Mason's mom does an interview with Gebhardt Daly, who again is covering this case like a majestic hawk, and his mom talks about the mysterious letter they found in her son's wallet and says that Mason said he had been hurting for five years now, and she claims the note included accusations of things that neither her nor his father had done. It's like she's defending herself against accusations that no one even knows about. Whatever's in that letter must have hit hard. And if Mason just ran off, seeing his mom dismiss his feelings against their actions after writing about not feeling hurt is definitely not going to entice him to come back. Oh, and by the way, his parents got a big old divorce after 30 years of marriage, and they both moved on quick. But let's get back to the point. In January of 2019... This year, a memorial bench is put up so that locals, friends, and family have a sense of a physical place to go and visit Mason. In May of this year, it finally happens, you guys. And no, they don't find Mason. But the Desert News and KSL-TV do report that police had or have been looking into Mason's parents all along. The two stations got a hold of a bunch of previously filed search warrant affidavits filed by the St. George Police, and it is a gold mine. They say that many of the documents state that police were collecting evidence to investigate criminal homicide, to which his dad doesn't seem to understand, saying that Mason left a suicide note. Oh, did he now? Because that's certainly a different summary than we've gotten before. KSL-TV says that the documents essentially raise an eyebrow at the fact that Mason's parents didn't call detectives for updates about their son's disappearance and didn't participate in many searches for him, which is debatable. They did show up for one of the searches, as you'll recall from earlier in the episode. They just left because they didn't feel like sitting around. The station also reports that in one warrant, police note that neither of Mason's parents nor any of his siblings called the detective investigating Mason's case looking for any updates. And this was written in December of 2016. That's more than a year year since he had disappeared. Mason's mom says she texted and emailed the detective regularly, but figured if there were any major breaks in the case that they'd get a phone call. I always wondered where these siblings were that he seemingly missed so much, the siblings that seemed to endlessly dote on him as the baby of the family. Where were their statements and what were they thinking? They also mentioned the thing that has stood out to me the most throughout this entire investigation. Mason's parents' inconsistent statements. Thank you. KSL-TV quotes one document from 2017 stating that the discrepancies between his parents' stories indicate that they know more information than they're disclosing about their son's disappearance. It turns out that police even put a freaking GPS tracker on Mason's dad's truck for 60 whole days. It was authorized right before Mason's episode of Disappeared aired on TV. You need probable cause to get shit like that approved, so once again, you have my attention. Now, Mason's parents didn't learn about any of this until recently, but they haven't fought back against it at all. It's not like they're screaming about how unjust it is or how offended they are. They just said that they have nothing to hide, so there is that. 
A St. George spokeswoman told KSL-TV that there are no suspects in Mason's disappearance, but there are persons of interest whom they believe have information about what happened to him. Remember that trip to the gym that Mason's dad took the day that Mason went missing when he said he wasn't sure if he looked at the contents of Mason's laptop before he went back to sleep or after he went to the gym? Well, according to KSL-TV, his dad checked into the gym at 7.45 a.m. Mason's bus is scheduled to pick him up at 7.41. The gym was 10 minutes from the house. Darren wouldn't have been upstairs in bed listening to the rustling in the kitchen, and he wouldn't have been there to hear Mason leave from the garage. He would have left before Mason did and certainly would have physically seen him as they crossed paths in the house. So why did both of his parents say that they were laying in bed when they heard Mason in the kitchen and then leave through the garage? It's physically just not possible. Sure, maybe his mom was still in bed, but his dad definitely was not. However, his mom has always gone along with this version of events. But why? But it gets better. KSL-TV dishes on another warrant that quotes a retired detective that works for Red Rock Search and Rescue who says that Mason's dad specifically told them that he hadn't seen or heard Mason on the morning he went missing. His dad even told him that it's possible Mason ran away during the middle of the night. Excuse me? Now I'm big mad. This opens up a whole new can of possibilities. I need one of those memes that says everything I know is a lie. To this day, Mason has never been found. Not a shoe, not a shirt, nothing. No one has seen him. No one has heard from him. His bank account has never been touched. His social media accounts have never been logged into. Every time remains are found anywhere near St. George, people hold their breath and every time it is not Mason. It's been over four years now, and the theories about what happened have come down to he ran away, he committed suicide, or his parents had something to do with it. And I think there's a compelling argument for all three. So what do you think happened? My bottom line, stay out of Utah. As always, I'll be posting photos pertaining to this case in Mason's highlight at the top of my Instagram, at the Heather Ashley. If you love this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get notifications every time a new episode is released. And if you're feeling fancy, drop us a rating or even a review. They always make our day. I'll be giving you a brand new case exactly a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We <laughs> out.